Hey, it's Sunday, October 25th, and the teaching text for today is Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. It says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Lord, as we reflect on your holy word, would you just make it alive to us? Would these words just be alive with enabling power as we trust in you and lean into your spirit? Would you just prove your worth, prove your faithfulness, your truthfulness uh, as we lean in and trust you more? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, last week, we brought a new team member onto our staff. So Ashley Osborne joined our team as director of operations. And so, so glad to have Ashley and her family join us. And as we've been onboarding Ashley, uh, I've been having all of these conversations with her about the history uh, of our church, kind of our story. And it's only been three years. There's like over three years ago that a group of us stepped out of Asbury, where we had been before and been sent to launch this new church. Really, really sweet three years. And I realized in telling Ashley the story of our church that there are many of you who maybe have come in the last six months or you started watching online during COVID and then came out as we've been on the lawn, or maybe you came you know, somewhere in the process of the three years that there are stories that for me are just foundational, defining moments for us that perhaps you've never heard. Um, one of those stories for me is really important. It's about how we started. In the beginning, there were only a small number of families who decided to start this journey of launching a church together. And half of them were my age, half of them were my parents' age, and full disclosure, my parents and my in-laws were among them. And, And early on, the denomination that we were a part of at the time sent me to these church planting workshops. Like, here's the best prevailing knowledge about how you go about planting a church. And while there were some redeeming aspects to these church planting workshops, I I mostly rejected the advice that they gave us. Uh, And the workshops were full of what, you know, from my perspective, was like gimmicky wisdom for how to entice people to like your church. So these strategies, like you give away an iPad, you give away a car, you host these events to try to lure people based on an interest in X, but then you're like secretly trying to rope them into your church. And it's driven by this pragmatic recognition that without a people, without people, you can't start a church. But I fundamentally reject a decision-making by pragmatics alone. And so in my frustration with this gimmicky model of church planting and church growth, I had a conversation with a buddy of mine in Dallas, Andrew Forrest, who has himself you know, planted a church that's gone really well. And I love Andrew because he's this black and white thinker with perhaps a dangerous amount of confidence. And Andrew just goes, well, forget everything that they told you. I know that your church is going to be successful. It's going to go really great because Jesus said, if you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit and you're going to remain in Jesus. So I know that your church is going to be really fruitful. And in that moment, it was this paradigm shift. 
where I had been, you know, informed by these church planting gurus thinking about how do we manipulate people into coming to our church? How do we, you know, attract them like flies to honey? And Andrew represented this invitation from the spirit to the altogether different way of behaving as a church, a shift away from believing that it was all on me, it was all on us and our cunning and our, and our you know, planning, in a shift toward this John 15 invitation to simply abide or remain in Jesus and then trust him with the results. And so from that moment on, our little launch team strode to take John 15 seriously, to like practice that very pragmatically as a group of people. And so we started what we called at the time the 333,000 challenge. The three represented uh, praying for three people who didn't know Jesus or who weren't part of a church that God might lead us to reach out to. The 30 represented 30 passages of scripture that we tried to remember, uh, tried to memorize. I think that my mom was probably the only one who got all 30. And then we had this really audacious goal of sowing 3,000 hours of corporate prayer into the launch of our church. And that's why we're still praying to this day. I think we hit 1,000 hours by the time the church launched. I don't know where we are. We gave up counting years ago at this point. But, uh, you know, and, and the prayer life of our church has never been a roaring flame. It's not like in doing these things that it felt all that dramatic or like we were these spiritual superheroes. We were just simply trying to remain in Christ. Our prayer life was not a roaring flame. To this point, it's not. It's just a steady candle. And as John Tyson told me, a candle can still set a forest on fire. And so as we took steps, you know, the 20 of us to remain in Christ together, that 20 really without us even trying, became 60. And that 60 became 75. And the week before we launched, there were 90 of us. And then on January 21st, 2018, having done no marketing, no advertising, no door hangers, no, none of these events, 250 people showed up. And within 10 weeks, we had to go to two services to accommodate all the people. And basically every year, the Lord has added about 100 people to our average participation in the church. And I think this year could be even more than that number. Now, do these numbers matter? Well, yes and no. Yes, they matter because they were affirming for me the John 15 message that if we remain in him, and he and us will bear fruit. And so in that sense, like abiding in Christ, I learned that lesson leads to fruitfulness. On the other hand, no, the numbers don't matter, that they're not necessarily indicative of real discipleship happening. New churches in Tulsa pop up often, and you know, new people go to new churches like moths go to light. And so we've never wanted to be drunk or overly flattered by impressive quantitative results. Because we don't want to just grow wide, attract a big following, or have huge numbers or be mega in any conventional sense. That's not our aspiration. We want to grow deep. Somebody said, if your church is not good at making disciples, it doesn't matter what else it is good at. And, and we want to hold that tight as a community, growing deep in Christ, putting down deep roots in Him. What I learned then and what I'm still struggling to learn now is that if, if your ambition as a Christian or if, if our ambition as a church is simply to be content being a nice church-going person or a nice church uh, where people can come and tick off the box and play church together, uh, the need to be, to be truly and deeply rooted in Christ, remaining in Christ, and to depend on the work of the Holy Spirit, if you're just trying to play church and be a good church-going person, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and the need to remain in Christ is going to be viewed as being purely 
optional. It doesn't require any amount of supernatural activity to show up for a one-hour service one to two times a month and then live as you please. But if your ambition, and if our ambition together as a church is to do the right things in the right way for the right reasons, becoming, as Paul said in the passage that we studied last week, a means through which the manifold wisdom of God can be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, then we must be connected to a life force that exponentially outsizes our own. And my Bishop Todd Hunter said this, He said, God's purposes in full-orbed discipleship to Jesus requires a power that matches his intentions. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Going back to the context of Ephesians, Paul has laid out this grand vision of the church in the first part of Ephesians chapter 3. And in the text that I've just read, he transitions to this moment of pastoral prayer for the multi-ethnic, socioeconomically diverse minority movement in a hostile climate that is the church in the city of Ephesus. And he tells the Ephesians in this text, here's what I'm praying on your behalf. He has four different petitions. First, it's that God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. He may strengthen you in your inner spirit, your inner being. It reminds me of the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. Jesus asks uh, the woman for a drink, and she's like, who are you to ask me for a drink? And he said, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for a drink, and I would give you living water, the kind of living water that would cause you to never thirst again. In fact, the water I give a person will cause rivers of living water to come flowing out of them. Jesus gives this vision of like, like, like if the spirit is in you and at work in you, you're going to be this generative force, like waters of living, streams of living water, a life force is going to flow from you. It's this vision of abundance, this vision of plenty, the vision of the Christian life as being a nourishing presence, a life giving presence wherever we go. Paul prays that God may strengthen you with power through his spirit, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. The second petition he makes, if you're following along in the text, is that you may be rooted and established in love. And this love, as Paul defines it here, as we read in the New Testament, is not merely tolerance. It's not some blasé 21st century sense of merely accepting people as they are, but a robust, joyful, hopeful, overflowing affection and commitment to see the world as God sees it. It's like if you can imagine the process of a house being built, a foundation is laid. Paul has this vision of the foundation being laid in love, the framing of the house being framed in love. Every piece of it coming together, encoded and embedded in it, is this quality and caliber of love that permeates every square inch of the construction. Paul prays for the Ephesians that they may be rooted and established in love. The third petition he makes on their behalf to the Lord is that you may have power along with the whole church, all of God's people, to know the comprehensive nature of God's love. And he uses dimensional language, the breadth, the height, the depth of God's love. I believe that in the age to come, When we know the triune God, we see God face to face, we will be surprised at how much better God is than we can possibly imagine. 
And this is ultimately what I think is meant and encoded by the word holy, that in God's love for us being a holy kind of love, there's an otherness to it. There's an altogether different caliber and quality of God's beingness, that God is just different. And to catch a glimpse or even a taste of this kind of multidimensional love would irrevocably alter us and leave us changed. So Paul says, may it be so that to taste this love, we will be transformed. And then the last petition is no small one. In, in Paul's text here, he says, I request that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. And this is no vision of a scarce Christian life. This is a vision of plenty, of muchness. And if all of this sounds a bit too much, a tad over the top, consider Paul's doxology, his conclusion. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine, according to his power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. To him who is able to do immeasurably more. Every summer, I go with my family down to a lake near Houston and gather with Odoms from all over the place, my aunts and uncles, cousins, grandparents, and we go to the lake and play. And one of the things that I really enjoy doing at the lake is, is riding jet skis or, or sea dews, especially when the water is really smooth. And the thing that I love to do the most is just push it to the absolute fastest the thing can go. Like if you're feeling slightly out of control and a little bit dangerous, that's the really fun place to be uh, for me. But every now and then I hop on the jet ski after perhaps somebody else has ridden it and, you know, the keys are already in and I hit the gas and I'm finding that I'm maxing out at 25 miles an hour or so. And I can feel that the engine wants to go faster, but there's something uh, holding it back. Something is, is restraining it. And it turns out that there are multiple keys that you can use uh, on a Sea-Doo. And one deliberately limits your speed. And that's the one that you'd typically do if someone younger is riding it and you don't want them to get in danger or out of control. Uh, but if you swap out that key for the other one, you find yourself untethered and unrestrained and you're able, as I really enjoy, to push your speed. I think that probably every person listening who's even attempted to walk with Jesus uh, would say that they feel like their Christian life is much more like operating with the first key where you're maxing out at 25 miles an hour, if that. And more likely than that, you feel like you're probably in the water behind the sea dew kicking and trying to get it to go. And we're frankly worn out and tired of trying to do things by our own strength. And so this vision of Paul, this petition of God for the Ephesian Christians, and I think for us sounds great, but it sounds like a description of something that few of us have ever experienced. And it may, be, it may have been something outside the experience of the Ephesians, which is why Paul was praying this into being, like letting these words wash over them. And the reality is, as we've talked about the Sermon on the Mount this year, and as we as a church are, are, are talking about this invitation to be well over the last couple of years, the reality is that the demands of the gospel are too great. In our cultural conditions, the world in which we find ourselves is just too hostile and our resources on our own are just too limited to attempt to make it as a follower of Jesus on our own. 
and we'll max out, we'll burn out, and we'll feel this unceasing and unmerciful level of pressure to perform and to make things happen. In his own patient way, I feel like the Lord has been teaching me and perhaps teaching us that before me and before us, there are always these two paths and we're invited to choose which way we want to go. And on the one hand, there's the path of trying to make it happen in life and ministry and parenting and marriage and dating, whatever. There's the path of trying to make it happen yourself. It's the path of anxiety. It's the path of work like it all depends on you. It's the path of impatience. And this was the path I felt that all those church planning workshops were beckoning me to follow. By your own cleverness, by your own calculations, you can make this happen. That's the path of making it happen on your own. On the other hand, there's this alternate path that few people take. And it's the path of abiding. It's the path of Jesus who says, I only do what I see the Father doing. It's the path of quiet confidence that God reigns and therefore I'm safe. It's the path of trusting in the slow work of God. The path of abiding promotes rest. It promotes confidence. It promotes trust and reliance on the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's better that I go away that I might send you the Holy Spirit. The path of abiding is like, yeah, that's the air I breathe. Like, I trust, Holy Spirit, that you're at work in the world. I trust, Jesus, that you are reigning over all the world and leading creation toward its proper end. Therefore, I can just roll with whatever you're doing. That's the path of abiding. The path of making it happen, by contrast, invites restlessness and fear and mistrust and self-reliance. And I'm just becoming convinced that no matter how long you live as a Christian or how long we persevere as a church, that the Christian life invites constant vigilance to opt for the path of abiding and reject the path of anxiety. As our church grows, I feel it even a greater struggle, perhaps even like a spiritual struggle, to opt for the path of abiding and actively reject the path of trying to make it happen. And we want to cling to the promises of God. Cling to this posture of Jesus. We only do what we see the Father doing. Therefore, we are unhurried and unworried. We're confident that God is work, that this is Jesus' church and not ours. Therefore, it is not on us. What's on us is to abide in him and he in us and confident that he'll do the fruit bearing. We just do our part. When I think back and I think back honestly with some pain and some shame, when I think back on my biggest failures as a pastor or even my biggest failures as a parent, they happened when I felt like everything was on my shoulders. When I actively chose, I opted to take the path of making it happen and I never stopped to ask, God, what are you doing in this situation that I should be paying attention to? My greatest failures have happened when not trusting God, I took responsibility for ultimate outcomes, which don't belong to me. But it was as if I was trying to strong hand them away from the Lord, and I took responsibility for ultimate outcomes and tried to manipulate or force my way toward success. In wanting to avoid screw-ups, I multiplied them by relying on my own limited resources and failing to throw myself at the mercy of God and leaning wholly on his unlimited supply. 
There's the path of trying to make it happen, of restlessness, of toil, of frustration, of self-reliance, and there's the path of abiding, of remaining in Christ and trusting him with fruitfulness, which invites rest and quiet confidence and trusting in the slow work of God. Herman Melville, in his classic work, Moby Dick, uh, tells the story of a whaling ship out hunting for, you know, the famous white whale. And Melville tells uh, the secret of the trade that illuminates a path of wisdom for us as followers of Jesus and us as a community of Jesus followers. This is what Melville says in Moby Dick. He says, to ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of idleness and not from toil. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of idleness and not from out of toil. From out of abiding and not anxiety, we're meant to live the Christian life. From out of a a posture of spirit reliance and not self-reliance, we're meant to faithfully and slowly follow Jesus, slowly going right direction. I only do what my, see, I see my father doing and not work as if it all depends on you. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remember your proper place. If you remain in me and I in you, you don't need to worry about fruit. You are not responsible for ultimate outcomes. What are you responsible for? Remain in me, rest in me. And this is such good news to folks who are burning out. I've known, I know what it is like to be on the path of burnout, and I don't want to go that direction. And I see so many of us who are just overwhelmed by the pressures and the anxieties of life right now, and we behave as if it all depends on us. We are maxing out the governor at 25 miles an hour. We know that like life demands, there's so much more freedom that's possible, but we are never going to get it if we are in the driver's seat. We're never going to get it by sprinting down the path of trying to make it happen when all the while Jesus says, come to me, come to me and rest. That's the invitation of Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm humble and gentle in spirit, and me you'll find rest for your souls. Rest and not toil, abiding and not anxiety. I just feel like in the reverberations in the ground and paying attention to what I sense God doing in the world and in our church, I just sense that there's a shift happening in a great way, that the Spirit is stirring up something fresh and that like as a church, COVID has played a role in this, but also like lots of factors are playing in, that there's a shift happening. I believe that we're going to see even greater fruitfulness than we have uh, in, our, in our first three years. But I also feel all the more so this invitation as a, as a pastor, as a person to remain in Jesus, to resolve to remain in Jesus and to actively reject the path of trying to make it happen. And I wonder where you are in all of that. If you're feeling the burden and the weight, the responsibility of stewarding your life and not screwing it up, And I wonder if you wouldn't hear, even in this moment, this mysterious way that the the Lord works in the gathering of the church, if you just feel this invitation uh, from the Lord to release responsibility to your life. One of my mentors uh, as a young man, I'm still young, but really young then, Joe Mooberry said to me that one of the things that so characterized the early disciples was this word abandonment. 
that they abandoned control of their lives in favor of throwing themselves headlong into the, the mercy of God and the wildness of following the Spirit. And I wonder if you don't hear today just this invitation to entrust your whole self and your whole life to the Lord, abandoning control and putting all of your chips in this path of abiding. Wouldn't it be so cool if as a church we tried to do this together? If as a church we just said like, hey, forget how anybody else does it. Not out of arrogance by any means, but out of just this resolution to like Hebrews 12, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who's writing this story. Wouldn't it be so cool if as a church we all just said, forget metrics, forget trying to sustain the success we've had as if that matters or if it's on us, forget all of that stuff. We're going to resolve together to abide in Christ and then just trust him with whatever happens. Wouldn't it be so great if we resolved together to just like abide in Jesus, to answer his question, yes, we want to be well, and gave up on trying to stronghand or manipulate our way toward the preferred outcomes, the preferred future. Don't you feel the invitation to freedom? Don't you feel in this the invitation to rest Paul says to him who is able to do immeasurably more, so much more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church. May it be so. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I I am just becoming convinced. I can't lead our church down the path of abiding. I can barely lead myself. It's like Peter on the boat saying, I'll come if you call me. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would stir in our church and we would hear your voice beckoning us to come, to come and rest, to come and abide. May you be this generative presence, this river of living water flowing out of us, not as we try really hard or make like scrunch up our face trying to pray with all seriousness, but would you just make it so for your own glory in the world? And for those of us who are gathered here in this building, Today, or even those who are watching online, Lord, as we come to communion, may we see in this, in this moment a living metaphor of what's happening, that we come empty-handed, counting completely for you to provide what we most need. As we eat the bread and drink the juice, every time we come to the table, would you remind us that our nourishment, our sustenance, our hope in this life is your life infused into ours. May the, may the wafer and the juice be so much more than that. May it be the means by which we experience the life of God in the church, generating new life in us for the glory of God in all the world. Lord, may it be so. Would it delight you to send your spirit and do this fresh work in our church and in our city for the sake of the world that you love and the people that you love and for the sake of the glory of God in our world. Pray this in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.